Hi, good morning. Um, it's been mentioned a few times, obviously, but happy Father's Day to the fathers in the room. And I've always thought that this church has a very unique way of celebrating fathers. And that is, as Kristen mentioned, to send all the students six hours away to Hume Lake. So um, some of you that are dads of middle schoolers or high schoolers, you're thinking to yourself like, oh, that's sad. There goes my kid. And if that's not your reaction and instead you're saying to yourself, goodbye, I'm praying for you too. What do you think? Am I being shamed for my goodbye comment? Is that like lightning? It could be. Um, so we've prayed for those students, but I'd like to take a, a time right now for all of us to just um, pray over them as they go. So just let's talk to the Father for a second. Lord, you um, have some students that are in this church that aren't at Hume. You have some that are um, headed there right now. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we want to just pray that you would meet them every step of the way. The ones that are nervous, the ones that are scared, the ones that are so excited to get away from their parents, they can barely breathe. We know that no matter where they are, um, you're with them. And we pray safety over the buses. We pray for no um, obstacles to get them there to hear from you. And we just pray that as they encounter you, they would be willing and open to give their lives to you and that you would change their worlds in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. My name's Katie Smiley. I'm sure um, I know a lot of you, but I don't know everybody in the room. And um, as Darren would say, I'm one of the shepherds here on staff. Um, I, uh, this year, my husband and I sent three students on the bus. And two high schoolers. And we have one little guy that's left home who gets a rad vacation with his mom and dad all to himself. <laughs> He's doing a fist pump over there. Um, I can remember the first time I dropped my early seventh grade son off in the parking lot to Hume. And I can tell you the truth. I was completely overwhelmed. First of all, I'm thinking, just put all the luggage on the ground right here. How are they ever going to find it? Do you think he'll wear, do you think he'll drink water? Is he going to have any allergies up there? This may sound ridiculous to you, but for me, it was reality, okay? Um, and it was kind of silly because who's the one who signed him up for camp in the first place, right? It was me. Well, my husband as well. Um, if I thought camp was a good place for him to be, if I was thinking that it was a place he could encounter God in a fresh way, if I knew the purpose was something powerful for good in his life, why couldn't I just show up to the parking lot and say, Goodbye. My son was in God's hands. And I had to ask myself the question in that moment a few years ago. Do I believe that all the things that happen in his life are meant to be to redeem his soul? To bring him purpose? To give him a relationship with the one true living God? Do I believe that? Yes, I do. Can I trust him to God? 
Life presents you and I with circumstances like this all the time, where we're forced to ask ourselves to look in the mirror and say, do I trust that this thing can be used by God for some purpose that I don't understand? Um, Every interruption of our daily routines, any world event that draws us to a screeching halt, any sinful behavior, any emergency that breaks into whatever we had planned for that day and makes us make a new plan. All of those things have us ask the question, who's really in control here? Is it God? And what does it look like if I can trust him? So that awareness kind of goes underneath all of the things we encounter in Genesis 45 today. I know Josh just read the passage, but we're going to work through it piece by piece. So if you have a Genesis journal or you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to chapter 45 in Genesis today. Um, We're going to start with this big, powerful, emotional moment with Joseph and his brothers. Um, Last week, Darren talked about the events leading up to this moment and the humility and sacrifice um, and openness that Judah showed. Um, But now it's time um, in 2022 language for the big reveal. And Joseph um, is realizing it's unavoidable. He has to tell his brothers who he really is. So we're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph orders everyone out. It's just his brothers and him. Um, Try to engage your imagination for a moment here and think about what this event might have been like. Um, Joseph has been alone and exiled from these people in Egypt for his entire adult life, right? Um, And he's known who these men are, who these brothers are, but they have no idea. He's been testing them along the way. He's been giving them opportunities to redeem themselves, to show their true character, to see what's been happening in their lives. But they have no idea that it's their brother who's been doing those things. Um, It says the brothers were dismayed. And a couple other translations say things like terrified, okay? They're speechless. So let's just assume that they are confused and completely overwhelmed. Um, I'd say that they were pretty much freaking out. Amen? Yeah. They're trying to put the pieces together. I mean, this is the man they remember as a young boy leaving in a pit, And now he's saying to them, I'm Joseph. I'm the one that you did that to. I'm certain that all of the events leading up to this moment are passing through their minds, right? They're thinking about um, their frustration, their rivalry, the way they treated him um, and abused him. They're thinking of that coat that their dad gave him and his special treatment. And they're wondering, how did we get here? Um, 
But as Joseph realizes the depths of their terror and the multitude of their freak outedness, if that's a word, um, he kind of calls them into himself. And he, he lets them know what his attitude is towards this moment in their history. And this is in verse 5. He says, Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. They have five more years of famine to go. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He's made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Isn't Joseph's grace in this moment striking? Don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves. Don't beat yourself up. You didn't send me here. God sent me here. Your evil intentions and jealousy were a part of this picture, but it was God who paved the way and made the path to bring us to this moment. It was God. Um, And it was meant for a purpose, to preserve life. Joseph sees all the events in the proper perspective, and he sees the end result in a proper perspective. And what he offers his brothers is grace. Grace. Did they deserve this favor and this calm and Um, soothing presence? Nope. But they did get it. In the midst of all the suffering and the anxiety and the abandonment, the success and the joy of Joseph's life, God was at work. He was at work in every moment. God is sovereign over Joseph's history and he's sovereign over yours. He's sovereign over yours and mine too. Okay, sovereign. That's kind of a churchy word, yes? We hear it mostly here. Although it's also used a lot in reference to like a tiny but immensely wealthy woman who lives in England, right? We use sovereign or sovereignty as a royal term. But we use it a lot when we talk about scripture and the character of God. God is sovereign. What comes along with sovereign is this sense of power and control. And benevolence and purpose over all things and over all the events of the earth. God is sovereign over all human history. Um, Easton's Bible Dictionary says sovereignty is God's absolute right to do all things according to his own good pleasure. I love that definition. Um, Since it's Father's Day, we'll just go there with a kind of Father's Day story, right? Have you ever watched someone teach a child how to ride a bike? Have you ever taught a child how to ride a bike? Have you ever been a child learning how to ride a bike? Yes. Okay. Let's just say most of us in the room are, you know, we have some sort of an idea of what this would be like. Um, I remember when my dad taught taught me how to ride a bike. I had gotten a beautiful pink bike for my birthday. It had a basket, yes. Yes. It had a little bell, ding, 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 ding. 
That's really all I wanted to do, but my dad had to keep saying, don't do the bell yet. You need to learn how to use the pedals first, my dear. Um, And I remember I went down the street. We lived in Vermont at the time, and I can picture exactly what that street looked like. Um, It was the only flat part of the neighborhood. And he helped me at least 100 times. Get up, fall down. Get up, fall down. Try to get all the pieces together to put them in the proper motion to get that bike moving where it needed to be. And towards the end of the day, he would start pushing me, and then he would not be running beside me. He would do this thing like with letting go of the bicycle. And I was mortified. And every time he let go, I would be like, you're not supposed to let go. And then I would fall down. Um, But eventually, over hundreds of times, really, he ran alongside me. He pushed the bike. He let go. And I just soared. Can anyone remember that moment? That, in a sense, reminds me of the sovereignty of God. God knows everything that's happening around us. Um, He is teaching us how to do this thing called life, moment by moment. He knows that as we go along the way, we're going to get scraped up. We might get some bruises. God forbid we might break a bone along the way. Certainly not in the smiley house. No. Um... But he eventually gives us freedom. He can let go of the bike every once in a while. And we can know that he is sovereign. And he is taking care of all the things. He is in control. God knows all the things that have happened to us and the world around us. He knows what we're going to experience down in the future. He knows the parents we grew up with or didn't grow up with. He knows the people in the room who have a tricky relationship with their dad and who thinking about riding a bicycle actually makes you sad because you didn't have someone to teach you or you never learned. He knows all those things. Your history might look like a war field, like a battle has gone on everywhere behind you. But you can know with absolute certainty that God was with you every step of the way. He is sovereign. And our prayer this morning is that you'd be able to take one step towards resting in that knowledge this morning. You may not be able to lay it all down at his feet today. This might be a really hard sell for you, that God is in control of all things. But maybe today, with prayer and with openness, you'll be able to take one step closer to him. So getting back to Genesis, the brothers, especially Joseph and Benjamin, they have this crazy emotional reunion, right? Tears, weeping, kissing each other's necks. Okay. Um, Whatever this means. Um, They start letting themselves start to have feelings. They're feeling the intensity of this moment. And Joseph, just along the way, assures them of his love and care. His perspective that this situation is all God. It's a God thing allows him to embrace them and offer grace and protection. He helps them know they can just live under his watchful eye, that he and Pharaoh are going to take care of things so that they can live. Um, Let's read a little bit further in chapter 45 to remember what happens next. This is in verse 16. And when the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, 
Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. And take your father and all your households and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. And you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for you, for your little ones, and for your wives. And bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods. For the best of all, the land of Egypt is yours. You are going to be okay. There's five years left in this famine, but we are going to take care of you to preserve life and to preserve your family. Not just your brothers, but your wives and your children and maybe all of your donkeys. I don't know. It's not written in there. Um, I love the thought that this story pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And it kind of reminded me in a, in a way of like all the videos where tearjerker videos, maybe like an Instagram reel or a Facebook video where you're watching like soldiers reunite with their uh, kids on like they surprise them at school or um, people reunited with their dogs. You've seen these videos, yes? No? I'm the only one. And you just picture Pharaoh and his family and his servants kind of being like, oh, did you see? Those are his brothers. Isn't that so great? And the word spreads like wildfire all over Egypt. Um, This is a feel-good story. So it's interesting to me, too, that it means that God is sovereign over their history, what happened to them in the past, and he's also sovereign over their plan of redemption. He's sovereign over their future, but not just the whatever happens in the future, he has a path for them that is meant to save and preserve life in the family, the descendants of Abraham. Um, What's fascinating to me is that he doesn't just use Abraham's descendants to accomplish this task. He uses Pharaoh and Pharaoh's people to accomplish this task as well. And in my mind, that seems sometimes maybe backwards. Like, how is God going to use these outsiders, these pagans, to save his family? But he does. And he does it all the time in the pages of Genesis. This moment feels like a huge success. It just feels like we've been through all of this, and now we are going to be saved. We're going to be free. And not to put a downer on it, but by, when I was studying, I couldn't help about thinking about the bigger picture, about what actually happens next. Years later, from this moment, the same God, with the same people, this family, the descendants of Abraham, uses this country, this land of Egypt, this community, to enslave these people. Listen to this in Exodus, just a few pages over from chapter 45 of Genesis. This is Exodus 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, 
and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So here we are. We think we're in full success mode in Genesis 45. But in the sovereignty of God, in a few years' time, few years' time, these same people will be ruthlessly enslaved by the Egyptians. It makes us ask the question, we still need to say, is God really sovereign over all? And I can tell you with surety, he is. It's easier to say God is sovereign, that he's in control. Praise him with our hands held high when things are going awesome. But when there's struggle and real strife, can we say the same thing? Um, Let's go into the New Testament for a minute to get a picture of how God is in all things and how we can turn ourselves to try to rest in that sovereignty. This is from the letter, Paul's letter to the Colossians in chapter 1. He just masterfully helps us see and understand the nature of the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is both the creator and sovereign over all of creation. Um, I love that it says he holds all things together. It's like he's our gravity, right? He's pulling us all together in his um, creative sovereignty. And yet we know, because we know the story, that Jesus suffered greatly. He suffered greatly, and yet he leaned into the sovereignty of his Father to accomplish the purpose to save you and to save me. What about our lives would be revolutionized if we consciously submitted our reactions, our fears, our freakouts, and our suffering to the one to whom and by whom all things were created? A few years ago, after a tumultuous season, complicated family dynamics, my parents were recently separated. Um, I had two toddlers. It was um, stressful, and that doesn't quite sum it up, if you know what I mean. Lots of opportunities for freak out. I used to read Psalm 103 every single day. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. I read that every day to try to remember I am here to bless the Lord. That's the purpose of my existence. And around the same time, one day I just sort of flipped the page and landed on Psalm 104. If you haven't read through Psalm 104 recently, 
Earmark that page in your Bible. Write it down. Send yourself a text real quick. I promise I won't think you're texting your friends. Um, Go ahead and read Psalm 104 when you get home. It's a beautiful poem filled with worship and awe over God who created everything. Um, When you look at the mountains, when you look at the ocean, when you see the trees, you'll know these were made by a loving God who's sovereign over everything. And in that time... I leaned into this one phrase out of Psalm 104. Oh Lord, you are very great. Because in my humanity, every time I would have an overwhelming feeling or a freak out, I would want to fix it. I would want to make a phone call or send a message or type up an email. I had hundreds of unwritten letters just living in my head all the time. Anyone? Um, And it was comforting And also convicting to be able to say in those moments, Lord, you are very great. And turn that over to the one who knows all the things. Um, When I had those overwhelming feelings, Lord, you are very great. When the conflict in my family gave me a pit in my stomach that would never go away, Lord, you are very great. Even now, when a friend is suffering and I can't fix it, Lord, you are very great. Um, When three of my children are on big buses to camp, Lord, you are very great. Um, The other day I witnessed a teeny tiny car accident. I was just in the parking lot at Starbucks. And um, I looked up and I saw two people and the cars were kind of a bit askew. And one was screaming at the other. Now, granted, her car had, like, the paper plate still on it. It was a brand new, very shiny and gorgeous Camry with, like, all the bells and whistles. And it was white, so you could see the black scratch. kind of made you go, And the other guy's car was, well, not new. And it did look like he had been in a few fender benders from time to time. Um, And you could make a lot of assumptions about this scene, Right? But the lady in the white Camry, um, and this happened like a few miles from here, so it's not one of you, I promise. Um, The lady in the white Camry was so angry. Have you ever been there? I kept hearing her say these things you and I might be tempted to say in that moment. I'm going to be late for work. This is a brand new car. What were you thinking? Right? And the guy in the beat-up Honda just sat there, kind of swinging his arms. He took it all in. He just knew, yep, I did this thing. Maybe he had experience. It looked like he had. (laughs) Um, But in the moment, I thought, I had just been reading Genesis 45 and, and Psalm 104, and I just thought to myself, what would be different about that situation if when he backed into her car, she was able to take a deep breath? And lift her eyes and look around and say, Lord, you are very great. You sent me here for a purpose this day. You know why this happened. I am your servant. I will do whatever you tell me to do. How would your life change um, if you said, Lord, you are very great? What would your first words be like in a car accident? Um, What would you say to the one at the restaurant who's making you so angry? How would you respond? 
when your child comes to you and says, I wrecked the car again. Lord, you are very great. Lord, you are very great. Since it's Father's Day, I mean, this could even get you to stop throwing things at the television during Angels games. Amen? So let's get back to Genesis. Um, Joseph and Pharaoh are laying out all of their really good plans um, for preserving a remnant. And um, they're going to be treated to incredible land and have favor with Pharaoh and all of Egypt. And in verse 21 of 45, it says, The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons. According to the command of Pharaoh, he gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them, he gave a change of clothes. To Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. Who do we think is his favorite? Um, To his father, he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provisions from his father on the journey. Then he said to his brothers as they departed, do not quarrel along the way. If you haven't gotten your dad a present already, 20 donkeys and a cart with a lot of cool stuff from Egypt, okay? I don't know where you get that. Maybe world market. I just, I'm not sure. Okay, I love this message from Joseph as they're leaving. Don't quarrel along the way. Don't quarrel along the way. Does this man, even though he's been away from them for many years, does he know his brothers or what? Um... Jesus gave his followers the same kind of departure admonition when he was about ready to um, die on the cross and, and rise again. He said in John 17, verse 20, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. Jesus, just like Joseph, is calling his family of believers to remember who they are, to remember that God sent them, to remember that he is sovereign. Um, it's, not, it's not cheesy. It's not that he's telling them, Everything's going to be great from now on. You're not going to have any places to fight. It's all sunshine and roses. He knows what is happening in the lives of these disciples as he departs for them. He knows that many of them will be killed for their faith, that they will suffer greatly for the name of Jesus. And yet he says, don't quarrel along the way. Be one as you and I, as the Father and I are one. I feel like our culture fights so hard against this anti-quarreling messaging, correct? Yeah, in America, we react. We go big. We give each other a piece of our mind. We blame. We post about one another on social media. We react instantly. We go off. And especially when we're freaking out, we go off. But we don't have to. Um, We can make the conscious decision to be the voice of reason, not to dive into the latest gossip or trends, or to give each other a piece of our mind. Instead, we could give each other the benefit of the doubt and assume the best of one another, to be one, just as Jesus and the Father were one. 
What if instead of reacting so strongly when you see something you don't like and are tempted to lash out, two little thumbs can do a lot of damage, yes? What if we said, oh Lord, you are very great. You sent me here. Um, Joseph's world, that please don't fight message is the same. To his brothers, he's saying, you don't have to be defensive. Just go, get to dad. I want to see him before he dies. Don't quarrel along the way. You don't have to boss each other or fight or bicker or one-up each other anymore. That is unnecessary. Just go get dad. Just go get him and bring them here. Bring the whole family here so that we can be safe and saved. Happy Father's Day, Jacob, right? You get to see your son. So it says in verse 25, they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father, Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb because he didn't believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob revived. I love that. And Israel said, it is, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. I love that he says, it is enough. In some uh, translations, that is, I am convinced. They were able to tell him, Joseph is alive. All those things we told you before about where he was, yeah, those are not the truth. <laughs> but he's alive, and he's safe, and he's in Egypt, and he's offering protection for us. Um, when we discussed this passage in some of our teaching, in a teaching meeting this, this um, week, Romans 8 came up quite a bit in our discussion, especially Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, When we read it, we just discussed, what does it mean to trust the sovereignty of God, to rest in his sovereignty, to learn, to know that all things are meant for us to have an opportunity to worship God and reveal him and be his ambassadors. Just a few verses later from 828, in 838, it says that same little phrase, I am convinced And Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just like Jacob, Paul is convinced That none of these things laid out before you in any given day are going to be able to separate you from the love of God. Nothing. No human rulers. No pesky neighbor. No flat tire on the way to camp. Nothing is going to be able to separate you from the love of God. How would your life change if you could take that in this morning and rest easy knowing God is in control of all things. He has a purpose for them and they are meant to bring you to him. Um, Genesis has shown us these same patterns over and over where people war against each other, sin creates violence, Adam and Eve, um, Noah and his sons, 
Cain and Abel, and it just gets exponentially worse as the chapters in Genesis go on. Um, You think about Esau and Jacob, Joseph and his brothers, his brothers in the village of Shechem. These are all the same patterns of sin and violence, creating problems, wreaking havoc on the earth, and yet God is at work to preserve life every time. He uses the insiders and the outsiders, the good, the good guys and the bad guys. It's all meant to preserve life, and it is the same for us. You may have a lot of pain in your history. You may sit in this seat today wondering how a loving God could have sent you to those places that you've been to, the suffering you've endured, the abuse or the abandonment, the neglect. Um, and yet... Even if you find yourself stuck in the tension of accepting the sovereignty of God, may you be able to say this morning, Lord, you're very great. I am in your hands. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this moment to be able to worship you and love you and be your children today. Um, We pray your blessing and goodness and faithfulness over every dad in the room. May they know that you have filled them with your love for such a time as this. And that they can take steps towards loving you and that it's all for your glory. I pray for everyone else that's here. That you would be able to move them one inch closer to resting in the sovereignty of God. To resting into the idea that you are in control And you sent us to this moment for a purpose. Lord, we love you and we worship you. And all we have is yours. Amen.